So far in Acts, we've seen the beginnings of what Jesus continues to do through his people and by his Spirit. We've seen the Gospel witnessed to and churches established in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and even beginning to spread out and make inroads into the Gentile world. It's been exciting, it's good. But like any organisation, this early Christian church begins to find that growth brings challenges. There's a risk of fragmentation as different groups have different priorities and different ways of doing things. So the overwhelming majority of these first believers were Jews or converts to Judaism. They came to Christianity with a more or less uh, shared worldview. Lots of common assumptions, lots of cultural overlap. They'll have had similar ways of approaching worship, similar understandings of what a holy people of God means, similar pictures of what church might look like. And that's great. It makes a lot of stuff easier for them. But of course there are drawbacks in any group or organisation, whether it's a church or a club or a business. If, If everyone's singing too much from the same hymn sheet, maybe some things will slip under the radar and not get questioned because it's just the way things are done. Lately though, this church has been spreading. It reached Hellenistic Jews pretty early on. Those were the religiously Jewish, but culturally more international, more Greek. And then as persecution drove the believers into new areas, they began to see a trickle and then a flood of Gentile converts. And that's great news. Much praise to God. But it's also the beginning of tension. In chapter 15, we've got the church beginning to catch up with the consequences of having Gentile brothers and sisters. People whose understanding of worship and holiness, and even of the basis of salvation, haven't been formed through the lens of a childhood immersed in Jewish culture. So, for the first time, they're encountering fellow believers who've been able to approach Christianity with entirely fresh eyes, or at least with a different set of initial prejudices. And only now, then, many years into the life of the church, they begin to be able to separate out the essentials in their beliefs from the cultural trappings that surround them. And by the grace of God, they also begin to see that they need to do that. They need to separate the essentials of the gospel from their cultural requirements. Otherwise, they're going to end up placing obstacles in the way of some of God's chosen people and risk even standing against their God. So what's the issue? Verse 1. Certain individuals came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers... Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. We see a bit more about these guys through the passage. Verse 5 suggests that they were from the Pharisaic group, or at least that others shared their view. And in verse 24, the apostles and elders say, you know, this was nothing to do with us, it wasn't initiated by us, it's not core church teaching. It's worth saying, we can probably be reasonably certain as well, these guys don't seem to be anti-Gentile. I don't think we've got a rift here emerging in the church. It's pretty clear that the church as a whole rejoiced and welcomed 
the Gentile believers. In verse 3, we read that all the believers were glad to hear of them. In verse 4, Paul and Barnabas are welcomed by the whole church, despite them being at the root of this problem, really. In verse 12, they get a respectful audience. Or in verses 7 and 8 and 11, Peter recognises that God has already accepted Gentile converts on an equal footing with the Jews. And James uses that phrase in verse 14, God has chosen a people for his name. It really looks like the same kind of language that God uses in the Old Testament to describe his choosing of Israel. Also, towards the end, verses 31 and 32, we see the encouraging effect of the letter on the Gentiles. Everyone's happy with what's going on. No one's suggesting here that Gentiles don't belong in the church. Rather, what's happening, I think, is they're trying to puzzle out what do Gentile Christians look like? And some of the group from the Pharisaic tradition are just taking their culture of holiness and worship and copying and pasting that across onto others. So they're demanding that Gentiles be circumcised just like Jews would. It works for us. And in case for an adult male that's not a big enough hurdle, they're probably also requiring full obedience to law, to Jewish ceremonial practice. That would govern food and Sabbath observance and pretty much every aspect of life. They're copying and pasting Hebraic Jewish culture, which fits for them, onto people for whom it's completely alien. And perhaps they're oblivious to the fact that it doesn't work, it doesn't fit. And the real problem is it goes beyond just not fitting. They've unwittingly asked the wrong thing of the Gentile believers. By applying their cultural expectations as an obligatory part of Christianity, they've put a barrier, a stumbling block, between Gentiles and the Gospel. And some believers might not be willing to cross that. So their cultural expectation has excluded people from the gospel. And it overshadows the gospel. And it's in fact more important than the gospel. And that's why we get verse 2. Paul and Barnabas and behind them the church in Antioch swinging into action. There's a sharp dispute. And a deputation is sent to Jerusalem to work out with the apostles what should the correct stance be. This is probably about when Galatians is written. Paul's heading up to Jerusalem and he writes to make sure that the churches in that region don't head down a false track. He records in Galatians how he'd had to challenge Peter over this issue. But by the time they get up to Jerusalem, Peter's graciously swung round, hasn't he? Look at his rebuttal of this teaching in verses 7 to 11. In verse 7 he says, We can't apply this requirement to the Gentiles because God sent his gospel to them. More than that, in verse 8, God has shown that he accepts the Gentiles. He's poured out his Holy Spirit on them, even though by ceremonial standards they're unclean. And then in verse 9, God doesn't discriminate between Jewish and Gentile believers, even though they're not circumcised yet. Why? 
Because their hearts have been purified by faith. Circumcision is nothing beside that. In fact, he says in verse 10, asking the Gentiles to to obey this Old Testament law, to shoulder that burden, amounts to testing God, opposing him, invalidating God's assertion that their hearts are purified. It's profoundly hypocritical. The Jews themselves have never been able to bear this yoke of law. They've failed again and again and again. They went into exile for it. Jesus called them down for it. And in verse 11, the clincher, even the Jews are only saved by the grace of Jesus. Just like the Gentiles. It's not by law. And so next, Paul and Barnabas get to tell tell of the wonderful things that God has done through through them amongst the Gentiles. And then James sums up with that quote from the prophet Amos as a reminder. Look, God is choosing a people for himself. Just as he had with Israel in ancient times. He's rebuilding his temple. He's doing it his own way. And in verse 19, it's not their place to oppose that with legal requirements. Simple then, if if you're a visitor or if you're just looking at Christianity or if you're hazy about what it means to be saved, how we get to be okay with God, the central core message of Acts 15 is this. There is nothing you or I can do. Whoops, I've gone too far there. There is nothing you or I... Ah, I've lost my bullet points. Never mind. There's nothing you or I could do to be kosher with the creator of heaven and earth. There is no set of rules and laws. There's nothing old or new that I can follow and be all right. Get judged good. We have not and we cannot shoulder a yoke of righteousness. We've failed to meet that requirement. It's only through the grace of Jesus that we can be saved, Jew or Gentile. It's only there that our our penalty can be paid, our crimes ransomed away, our slate get rubbed clean, and our righteousness achieved. And it's only by faith in Jesus that we get to share in that, that we step safely into God's nation. That's the core of Acts 15. That's what's going on here. Only by faith, only by grace can we be safe. So let's praise God. He's worked this redemption. He's opened doors of faith for people like us who deserve so little and receive so much. And that's the Apostle's response to any requirement of law, any condition that people are supposed to fill to be safe aside from simple faith in Jesus. They say, no, never. Only by the grace of God can we stand. If you want that unpacked more, have a read of Galatians. But for now, let's quickly peek at the rest of the Apostles' response and then explore some application. What happens next is a bit weird. It's obviously important. Luke takes the time to say it twice. 
He doesn't often do that. So first James, who seems to be leading the church, pipes up. And then we get the text of the letter that they send, which pretty much repeats him. And it makes slightly bizarre reading at first. But it's obviously good news. You can see that in verse 31. The church in Antioch is glad and encouraged. And then after a while in verse 33, they send Judas and Silas, the apostles' messengers, home with the blessing of peace. The message has gone down well. And first off, in verse 19, James says they don't want to make it difficult for Gentiles to come to God. And in the letter, in verse 28, they say they don't want to put a heavy burden on the Gentiles. I think that's what they're happy about. There's no need for circumcision, no need for law. And then they make what at first glance is a slightly bizarre set of requests. In verses 20 and 29. Don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Don't eat blood or meat from strangled animals. And don't indulge in sexual immorality. It's a bit of a weird mix. There's a clearly moral issue, don't be sexually immoral. There's a clearly cultural one, eat kosher food. And a slightly ambiguous one, don't eat food sacrificed to idols. That's, well, idolatry is clearly morally wrong. But if you don't believe in the idol... And that's just how the butcher in your town works. What's the problem? In 1 Corinthians, Paul seems to indicate that there's nothing actually wrong with meat sacrificed to idols. Dead idols have no power over us. God is sovereign. So what's going on? What's the deal with this bizarre set of requests? Should we be following these now? Are these obligatory for believers? And if they are, how does that mesh with the idea that we're only saved by faith? I think the clues are verses 19 and 28. Have a look at those. Verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. They acknowledge this is a burden they're imposing. In verse 19, it it makes things difficult for them. It's a weight to carry. It's something extra. And it's not essential for them. Now, I think this is for the sake of the Jewish believers. In verse 19, they say, the law has been preached everywhere for ages. These are steps that won't be completely alien to the Gentiles. And at least anywhere there's a synagogue, it should be easy enough to follow these. Where there's a synagogue, there'll be a kosher butcher. They're being asked to adopt some of the trappings of Jewish culture. I think that's just so that the Jewish believers won't have a difficult time accepting them. So that the Jewish believers won't have an impassable obstacle, a stumbling block between them and God's chosen Gentile church. I think even the command against sexual immorality probably fits into that. It would cover the uh, pagan sex cults and temple prostitution, but it would also cover other things. Jews had stricter limits on who they could marry among their close relatives than some of their neighbouring Gentiles might. And Jews might have found it very hard to associate 
with Gentile Christians who had ceremonially illegal marriages. If you want a modern analogue to that, consider how you would feel about associating in public with, say, a 30-year-old, a recent immigrant maybe, who had brought with him his 14-year-old wife. Maybe that would carry a little bit of the feeling of wrongness for us that the Jews might have. And just like the apostles didn't want the Pharisaic believers to behave in a way that put an impassable barrier between Gentiles and the gospel, they didn't want the behaviour of the Gentile believers to cut Orthodox Jewish Christians off from the body of God's church. And so they asked the Gentiles to shoulder a burden for the sake of the Jews, to help with that. It strikes me that this was probably just the beginning of some pretty serious shake-ups for the Jewish church, as they began to appreciate <coughs> salvation is by faith alone. As they began to wean themselves off law and began to move away from a, a sort of Pharisaic culture of righteousness, towards a culture that acknowledged Christ's full grace. I think that's what Acts 15 is saying. We're saved by faith alone. So don't let circumcision or law stand between the gospel and God's chosen people. But be ready to take on burdens for the sake of others. If you want to see that in action, you you can just jump ahead a little bit and see how after all of this arguing, Paul goes and gives Timothy the chop in chapter 16, verse 3, so that he can reach the Jews in that region. Good old Timothy accepting that at age 20 or so. Or cast your eyes over 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, particularly 10, 23 to 33, and, and see how Paul was prepared to become all things to all men, to shoulder any burden, any law, no matter how hard it was, so that he could reach and witness and invite people in. I know some people think of Acts 15 as just an important record of a crucial early debate which is now settled, so doesn't matter too much anymore. But I, I think there are some important applications for us now. Clearly, that recognition that salvation is by Jesus' grace, by faith in him alone, that's essential. But in addition to that, let me give two examples for us to follow, which I think tug us in slightly different directions. The first is, we must not put barriers of law or tradition between salvation and potential believers. We must not put barriers which overshadow the gospel. The second is that despite that liberty that we have, that freedom we have from any legal burdens of righteousness, yet we need to be ready and willing to accept those burdens for the sake of others. So let me just expand those briefly before I finish. The exact circumstances in any modern church will be different. I doubt many churches will demand circumcision or obedience to Old Testament Jewish tradition. And although probably some preachers might see the command in verse 29 as standing, the majority of Christians aren't too fussed about food before idols or kosher butchery. But still, sometimes churches deliberately establish rules. Sometimes those have good reasons behind them. You can see the thinking. 
Imagine a church which is very conscious of the devastating effect of alcoholism in their community. There might be an insistence then that real Christians are teetotal. They stay away from that danger. Or because work and career are such potential idols for us. Some churches will demand rigid Sabbath keeping. Or conscious of the risk of money worship. And the centrality of sharing and community and giving and charity. Other churches might demand rigid tithing. Or official membership. Imagine that. Or a church which is drawn from some religious and ethnic groups might demand that its members don't eat pork or beef because that is the cultural shape of righteousness. And for some people, in some situations, some of the time, those might be sensible choices, appropriate disciplines. But they're not law. They don't reflect right and wrong. Christian and non-Christian. They they must never be allowed to stand between a seeker and the gospel. Probably more relevant to us, easier for us to think through maybe. Sometimes churches establish those rules accidentally. I worry. How accessible is the gospel through our church? Do we risk being too monocultured? Is there a danger that a visitor could arrive and get the message, at some level at least, that Christianity is for the white or the middle class or those well enough educated to be comfortable sitting through a long, boring sermon? Sorry. Or any other factor like that? Or how acceptable might someone feel if they join us from a tradition that holds the holiness of God very reverent in its approach to worship. We're so free and easy with that holy God. What if you join the church as a teetotaler and find that for many of us, the pub or a glass of wine is pivotal to social gatherings? I don't have any answers sorted out for that, but... The straightforward reflection of Acts 15, we've got to be careful in our thinking and question our assumptions and and be alive to the sensitivities of others so that we don't accidentally put culture or law between them and God by entangling our culture and true Christianity. We must not impose barriers that obscure the reality of the gospel. That would be testing God. And that's profoundly dangerous. It's got an impact on us and on other Christians, which can be deeply hurtful. And on the flip side, we need them to be willing to accept burdens, to give up freedom for the sake of others. Jesus says in Mark 9:42, If anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, those who believe in me, it would be better for him if a large millstone were hung round their neck and they were thrown into the sea. It's drastic stuff. It's best not to put people off Christianity. The Gentile church here in Acts 15, it, it could have rejoiced in its freedom from the law, It could have said, stuff you apostles, we're not doing that. 
and carried on as before. They would have had every right, but it might have devastated the faith of some Jewish believers as they struggled to see how this could fit in with their holy God. How much better was the Apostles' request? They were asked to limit their behaviour, to voluntarily bring themselves under rules which by rights they were free from, so that the Jewish believers wouldn't be put off communion with them, so that Christ's church would therefore be richer and more glorious. And they seemed to take that task on gladly in verses 30 to 35. They curtail their own freedom to make it easier for their Jewish brothers and sisters. So that those frail <coughs> believers, over-dependent on law, wouldn't stumble. What does that look like for us now? I think there'll be a, a host of individual applications. Plenty of areas where the needs of others around us will chafe against our pride and freedom. Areas where we might be called, like the Gentile church here, to shoulder burdens so that others can respond to the call into our God's nation. Sometimes we'll need to give time to care for those around us, to give companionship, to mortify our impatience with someone who's struggling, to spend our tendency to judge so that we can nurture the weak and help them along. And sometimes we'll need to hold back because of the sensibilities of others. As Paul puts it, for the sake of weaker brothers. We might hold back from the things we discuss or the language we're comfortable to use or the films we'll go to see with people or chat about or the food and the drink that we consume. Hold back knowing that by so doing we're avoiding turning someone away or shutting them out from comfortable fellowship, or confusing their ideas of Christianity. Yeah, in the long run, we want everyone to understand the, the freedom they have in Christ from law, or from the obligation to demonstrate righteousness. And we want everyone to be able to responsibly enjoy the good things that God gives us. But how much better that I hold back a little now so that person can grow in Christ and share with me later. And sometimes we will crash on like a bull in a china shop. And the way that we might pridefully or just short-sightedly, unimaginatively exercise our Christian freedoms might turn someone away from church or set back their understanding of what it means to belong to a holy God. Or make them say, I knew Christians were like that. Or just offend them and damage the communion of Christ's church body. And when that happens, I guess we, we simply need to be quick to repent. To ask for our Lord's grace and forgiveness, which he pours out for everyone, Jew or Gentile for his Spirit's guidance in healing those wounds and in bringing change. To be a Christian is to be saved by faith 
in Jesus alone, by the glorious provision of his grace alone. Let's be careful not to put any other conditions or barriers or cultures around that. Let's follow his example and be ready to shoulder any burden, even our cross, in living out his gospel and calling others to his name.